Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome to A More Perfect Union. I'm Chris Wolf, and today we're going back to our conversation with Peter Canellos, author of The Great Dissenter, the story of John Marshall Harlan, America's judicial hero. With us are our panel of roundtable regulars, higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, our station manager, Peter Jay, and my co-host, Nick Remesong. But most importantly, we're joined again by Peter Canellas, author of The Great Dissenter, the story of John Marshall Harlan, America's judicial hero. And let's pick up that conversation where we left off. Yeah, but let me add another sort of context to this. It's irreparable for those who are impacted in their day-to-day life. And I think this is where, and forgive me, folks for this. But this is where the whole idea of privilege comes in here. Because if I'm a woman, and I'm 10 years old, and I get raped, and I'm in a state where they tell me I have to give birth to this child, then what happens when my whole mental and physical structure starts to break down when I realize the gravity of what's going on with me as an individual human being. And the court, uh, I agree with you, Peter, that at some point the court has got to take into into account what is the impact on individuals, what's the impact on the country, what's the impact on our people, what's the impact on us as a country going forward, which goes back to the whole theme of this program. How can we justify moving toward a more perfect union when the Supreme Court becomes politicized and not sort of the purveyors, if you will, of reason and justice and fairness? And I think that's what happens. And I tell you, as a member of the Black community, one of the things that I have seen from the Supreme Court out of this decision is actually a taking away of sort of the gray area in my mind about some of the things historically that I had some question about. Let me give you an example. The Black Panthers, for example. The Black Panthers were one of the first groups of what I'd say people of color who realized the law can be used to help us, not necessarily just hurt us. So when they got to the open carry laws in California, they then knew that as they stood on the steps of the Capitol building in Sacramento, that they were well within the law by having those guns on their shoulders and that they could not be arrested because that was the law. And yet their manifesto, which was ignored by the general population, but embraced by many of the black community, their manifesto 
was really about not just self-defense, but about the whole protection and economic growth and development and social development of their community in Oakland. So history then becomes, I think, an important sort of landmine, if you will, for us to, from time to time, step on and say, whoa, wait a minute, you know what? The Supreme Court just blew up my whole concept of what was fair. But then I forgot that there were people who are trying to, who were trying to tell me years ago, watch out for this, watch out for this. And yet it was suppressed, crushed, and in some instances, uh, just eradicated from our community by the system. Now, I don't want to sound like a wild-eyed radical, but these things, I think, are becoming, well, maybe I am a wild-eyed radical (laughs) at this point, because now I'm rethinking some of the things that I I believed that the court was trying to do, but now that whole thing has been rocked inside of me. So it's not a matter of, you know, well, some believe, some don't. It's a matter of how is this impacting people, and then what do they do, and how do they react about it? Um, And your book, for example, Peter, one of the things that I did not realize was, uh, even though I knew the history, was how pervasive Black political and economic influence was between 1870 and 1883. And then when Plessy versus Ferguson came up, suddenly, here it is, Harlan's uh, half-brother, or at this point, you're right, with the DNA, okay, his associate at this point, who actually helped to fund some of his political campaigns, gave him political advice, according to your, according to your research, his whole being economic, social, and political was crushed and then put into almost non-existence. So folks, I think this is important for us to realize that the Supreme Court, number one, is not infallible. Number two, it has been politicized. And I, and I appreciate you going back to Mitch McConnell, another one of my homeboys, that he was the one who stole two seats and gave them to Trump. And yet when we look at this, uh, and I say that again, without any reservation, because he broke with norm. Well, you can say, well, it's not thievery if there was really was no rule or law against it. Well, there was tradition, but yes, he took those two seats and made up some excuse. And I, as, as well as many others in the people of color and in the, and in the women community realized that we had been had. And how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that as an individual or small group uh, or minority within the system, Peter? And before you jump in, Peter, I mean, thank you, Michael, for for making it so real. I am on, you know, groups of women who are advising, you know, the medical community, like get an IUD now. Like the fear of the contraception coming in is real. Like, you know, it's doctors who are advising other doctors, like, what do you do for your patients? How do you do this ethically? What, like, should we be worried? And that, like, panic of people saying, oh my gosh, we're out of IUDs in this state. We need to, you know, get out of state if you can. And it's, you know, and we're not there yet, obviously. Contraception hasn't, but I am, and and Michael, you said a 10-year-old woman, a 10-year-old child who getting pregnant puts that child at risk. You know, they are not a woman at 10 and they are not, you know, it's, it's horrific and it's difficult having these conversations where they're theoretical about history, about you know theory, the law, and then at the same time having the conversations that are very real about today and not sort of being sacrilegious and being like, why do we care about this document, the Constitution? And you know, like why? Why are we why are we prioritizing that over lives? And sorry, Peter, over to you. 
I have some reactions to what you're saying, uh, Michael, and that is that I think that you, you know you're absolutely right. The Supreme Court is not infallible and has never come close to being infallible and has a, a terrible roster of decisions. There's some really horrible ones that we haven't mentioned, including in, uh, you know endorsing eugenics and forced sterilization and things like that that are horrific decisions the Supreme Court has made. Uh, I also think that you know the idea that there are sort of class biases on the Supreme Court because everybody's influenced by their life experiences. That was very much the case when Harlan was on the court, that the Northern justices were all wealthy corporate attorneys, and that very much uh, put them in, in, in league with corporate leaders and things. What is a little different now, though, is that there, there's a political strategy and agenda behind putting people on the Supreme Court. So in Harlan's time, you had an unbroken string of pro-business presidents uh, after Andrew Johnson, uh, you know, from Grant basically until Teddy Roosevelt. The only Democrat during that period was Grover Cleveland, who was called a bourbon Democrat because he was a supporter of Wall Street and came from New York. Um, and they all appointed uh, these sort of elite wealthy attorneys to be uh, to be on the court, except for the, the appointment of Harlan, which was again, part of that Rutherford Hayes deal to assume the presidency where they were going to appoint a southerner to the supreme court so that you have this one person who came from a com completely different background who was who was on the court well in that time you could say yes there's there's class biases and economic biases present on the court but those presidents did not appoint those justices in an open way saying, you know, they are going to strike down economic prote protections, they are going to prevent government interference with business they're going to, you know, declare a right to contract that will prevent labor laws from taking effect. It was not, it was not a, a bill of particulars the way it is today. You know, you have a conference at the Federalist Society or in a parallel at the American Constitution Society, and they'll say, these are, these are the things we care about. In the case of the Federalist Society, we want to have open school prayer. We want to limit the uh, regulatory power of the government and administrative agencies. We want to uh, defeat abortion. We want to, you know, roll back in some cases the, the gay marriage decision. I also, jumping off of what Natalia said when you said we're not quite there yet with contraception and things, you know, keep in mind there was a contraception case a few years ago in Hobby Lobby uh, where a private business wanted to deny contraceptive coverage to, uh, to, to their employees and, and they were granted the right to do so under religious freedom. So, I think it's very foreseeable that there will be cases coming before the court involving gay rights for sure and contraception possibly. You know, there are people out there who say, well, there's no real appetite to overturn this stuff. But, uh, you know, it, it's an open question how the Supreme Court will uh, react if and when those cases come before them. You know, this notion um, that uh, has been a theme throughout some of these four cases from the Supreme Court is that uh, we're sending the issue back to the states and we're going to let the states decide uh, how to handle these particular issues. And I can tell you that uh, here in Massachusetts, uh, over the last several weeks, uh, we have been, uh, you know, handling legislation on how to react uh, to uh, the Dobbs decision. Uh, we had taken uh, some uh, moves in, in legislating uh, two years ago uh, in anticipation of Roe being overturned. And uh, it appears we did not go far enough. So we have additional legislation that's being taken. So uh, 
uh, folks in Massachusetts, I would say, uh, can feel particularly comfortable uh, with regard to this. But there are 49 other states, and there can be 49 other sets of rules that are out there. And, you know, I would suggest that uh, you go back to Plessy versus Ferguson, and uh, we're going to let the states decide on uh, segregation or any myriad of issues that come along. Uh, I wonder if you would just share your thoughts on the danger of letting the states decide on these issues. And, uh, you know, we're, we're in polarized times. And how does this help uh, when we uh, take the Supreme Court and it kind of takes itself, takes the federal government out of this, uh, this role? I wonder what, what you think of that. Well, I mean, you know, I think that the the whole idea in the Supreme Court uh, that it's a it's a very important thing, and this was in Alito's opinion about the you know returning it to the states, letting people make their own decisions, letting each state choose its own policies. You know, it should be noted they they didn't do that when it comes to things like the football coach praying on the middle of the field and gun rights, for example. They didn't let New York have its own gun laws. They they quickly put an end to that. So their ideology about returning things to states is very selective, for sure. I think that the um, the political issue that is that is interesting and complicated when it comes to states is that we're going to be in a situation where uh, many states like Massachusetts will provide uh, access to abortions, and people from other states who are uh, economically able to travel. Um, can come in and, and, and get abortion services. So what that means is that if you're talking about a place like a competitive political state like Georgia, for example, and everyone in Georgia says that the big swing constituency in Georgia tends to be suburban women, the sort of soccer mom constituency, it's an open question in my mind, are the, are the soccer moms gonna be deeply concerned about uh, the possibility of losing abortion rights, which again is a very real thing in Georgia, or are they going to feel a sense of security that that for they and if their daughters uh, were to get pregnant, uh, they they have the means to fly up to Boston uh, and get the services that they need, um, and that takes it off the table as sort of a contentious issue for them, uh, and then they can then vote because they're so angry about inflation and the cost of food. Uh, so that's that's the political dilemma that we're we're looking at for the midterms right now. Just a reminder, we're talking with Peter Canellos, author of a very relevant book for today's discussion about a more perfect union. It's called The Great Dissenter, the story of John Marshall Harlan, America's judicial hero, one of the, perhaps the Supreme Court's most distinguished uh, justices. I, I do want to bring up one point, somewhat uh, tangential, but there has been a groundswell of talk about national referendums being used to determine some of these questions. And Jeff, in particular, uh, as a, you know, a, a man of politics, how do you feel about something like that being presented? In other words, most states have, when you go to your general elections, they'll have questions. That I regard as kind of an agenda. What's, what do the people out there think before we make a final decision? Do we put that on the national level? Do we make it something that comes up quarterly? I don't know, every year, whatever. Uh, as, a, as a step towards re uh, resolution, do you see that as being viable? Well, I like to think of myself as a representative of the folks uh, 
that uh, sent me into uh, Beacon Hill, uh, because to send a lot of these questions out for referenda is very cumbersome. It's, uh, to me, uh, I'm not sure I'm convinced that people are doing an analysis of the question that is presented to them to fully and fairly uh, answer the question. I know that when I'm called upon to vote on an issue, I study it, I visit places, I read about it, I meet with folks. Uh, if I had the confidence that uh, people would do that on some of these types of issues, um, you know, I might be convinced that's the way to go, but we set up a representative democracy. And uh, I am the voice of 40,000 people uh, in that beautiful building that you see uh, behind me. Uh, and, uh, you know, senators in, in Massachusetts uh, represent uh, 160,000 people. And our congressmen and congresswomen uh, represent uh, over 300,000 people. And, you know, we set it up so that we're elected every two years so that we're very close to our constituents and they get to know us and get to talk with us. Uh, I feel comfortable with that brand of government. Um, uh, I've seen referendum, uh, you know, take bad turns and, uh, you know, not necessarily uh, the best way to go. And I'm not going to pinpoint some of those bad uh, questions that I feel because uh, that that'll only cause a lot of trouble. And we'll leave that for another show. But yeah, the, sure the, well, I'll, I'll jump in. I'm happy to questions. name one, which is, you know, I'm for, from the UK originally. And then we had the well, I, what I think is a disastrous vote to exit the European Union a few years back. So I'll just put that out there as my uh, personal bugbear. Yeah, it, it's I, I again, I, I bring it up for discussion, but I, I agree it's 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 something where too often and far too vastly it's going to be voted on emotion. The quick one time response that you never reconsider that you never you never look at that deeply. But it, it's something that has come up and has been triggering some comment, uh, generally around my neighborhood, but that's about it. You know? <laughs> well, and let me uh, jump in on that one, too. Uh, you know, as a person of color, uh, I can tell you that in this country, thank goodness we don't have referendum, uh, a government by referendum, because for the first uh, 400 years, I guess, of, of existence in this country as a person of color, and as a descendant of former slaves, you know, we were always in the minority. Now, one of the things that's happening uh, is that as people of color move more toward becoming the majority, it's interesting that conversations around referendum style government and stuff are, 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 are percolating at the same time when we're trying to basically uh, put more in the hands of the states for them to decide. Now, that being said, uh, when you look at representative form of government, it, you know, the whole segregation era came around as a result of putting the government back in the hands of state representatives. Uh, one of the first things that happened after uh, Rutherford B. Hayes was put into office and the troops were moved out of the South was this grandfathering in of all of the insurgents and the rebellious folks who uh, were against the uh, U.S. government and putting them back in as full citizens, which then led to the subjugation of the people of color who had just been freed uh, and basically trying to re-enslave them. 
in the South. So, you, you know, there's good and bad on both sides. But again, I think that's what leads us to at least the words of are we all equal? Can we move toward a more perfect system? Uh, and if you have a belief in that, then maybe you can keep the faith over time and through generations that, you know, this experiment can continue to go on. Are we in a perilous time now? Yes, we are. I do believe we are in a very perilous time. But can we work ourselves out of it? I think we can. And, uh, uh, you know, and it's that faith that keeps me, uh, you know, I guess, uh, invested in not only my country, but also uh, my fellow citizens. Uh, l let me also throw out to a, uh, a question regarding something around the idea that privacy is not mentioned in the Constitution, Peter uh, and Natalia. So, <laughs> OK, so as a result, race is not necessarily uh, well. Yes, race is mentioned in the Constitution, uh, you know, in terms of the freeing of the slaves, uh, not directly. But the Supreme Court seems to hide behind this idea that if something is not in the Constitution, we can ignore it or we can then create some way to create it. Um, and one of the things I found interesting in your book, Peter, is the idea that the Supreme Court from the 1870s on started to have this race test. And the race test was, uh, as I read it, if a state creates a law and it doesn't mention race, then you can't, as the court, insert race into the outcome of that, uh, uh, of that law. But at the same time, they also created this idea that we can't create a super race either or super protections for a race, which is what they use in order to strike down the civil rights laws of those times which was the idea that we cannot create laws that protect our former slaves more than uh, uh, over and above protecting all citizens equally. Well, the, the, the case you're probably referring to the most is the civil rights cases of 1883, which indeed said that if the uh, uh, state were to uh, openly discriminate against uh, people of color, for example, and you know do so in an, in a uh, an obvious way, as happened in some cases when states tried to ban black people from juries, that that would be declared unconstitutional. But the acts of individuals, including individuals you know who are working in uh, things like transportation that have traditionally had some you know state interest kind of combined in there, any of those individuals, the, the sleeping car porter, the the uh, train railroad conductor, the uh, theater uh, usher, uh, that that the federal government could not take action against those people or regulate their actions in any way. So they left it to the states to take care of those kinds of situations. So, uh, you know, that uh, states' rights was the, uh, the, the rallying cry before the Civil War. Uh, the idea of giving states more autonomy has traditionally been a way of, of, of sanctioning some degree of discrimination or seen as sanctioning some degree of discrimination because you're giving, you know, individual states, smaller groups of people the right to to, to set their own laws and practices uh, free of federal interference. And, uh, you know, that is definitely the world that the United States lived in during segregation. Well, why doesn't that apply to women in terms of how can the state regulate 
uh, a women's uh, uh, women's bodies or the functioning of their bodies? Or how can the how can the government regulate uh, who you love, whether it's uh, same sex marriage uh, or how you receive your health care? I, I mean, these things have been perplexing to me in terms of how the court sort of grabs its hands around things that I would think actually are the platform for privacy. Don't I have a right as a citizen in the United States to be able to have a conversation with my doctor about things that are, uh, you, you know, that are, uh, you know, that really relate to my life? I'd also like to add in, uh, by the way, to extend your question, Michael, we have HIPAA laws, which guarantee, you know, that medical professionals and whatnot are bound not to discuss uh, patients, conditions, rights, questions, and so on. Uh, recently at a hospital, I even saw a sign in an elevator that said, never discuss a patient's case in an elevator because other people happen to be there. So they take it all very seriously. That said, the right to privacy has been pointed to in both the Fourth and the Fourteenth Amendments, particularly the Fourteenth Amendment with respect to uh, abortion. Um, and, and so I'd like to sort of flesh out some more of that how that original premise was put in place, which, by the way, I agree with, and now has been taken apart uh, by the current court. But maybe what we need is an even stronger, a strengthening of what we constitute more directly as a right to privacy, because right now we're facing an era where we have bounty hunters in Texas looking for people getting abortions. We are, we are seeing some states actually turn over the enforcement of their laws to the citizenry. And I think that all of these are very dangerous waters. Well, I mean, as, you, as you're referring to, there is language in the 14th Amendment about personal liberty. It's not privacy that's mentioned, but it's liberty that's mentioned. And that's where the Monroe majority uh, found the right uh, to abortion. Uh, you know, in, in Justice Alito's position, uh, opinion in Dobbs, you know, he somewhat ridiculed the notion that people try to find the privacy right in so many different places, including the Ninth Amendment. And you mentioned the, the Fourth and Fifth Amendments with their uh, procedural um, due process requirements. Exactly. Um, and uh, and sort of sort of tried to presented as though people who were trying to find a right to abortion were sort of flailing around trying to just looking every under every corner of the Constitution to try to find some justification for that viewpoint. On the other hand, it's kind of indisputable. The 14th Amendment says that uh, there are liberty interests that the state cannot transgress, you know, that people have a certain liberty interest that, you know, frees them from state interference. It also says in the Ninth Amendment that there are unenumerated rights that go beyond uh, what is what is strictly written in the Constitution, and you know that's where the battle, the legal battle over abortion, has been fought. You know, on the meanings of of those terms, and you have people, obviously, like Alito and other conservatives, who will very tightly kind of restrict that and suggest that all oh, these terms are so vague, they're kind of unenforceable, and that you need to have a very uh, clear sort of uh, theory of constitutional interpretation that that leads to an ironclad kind of kind of result and conclusion. But you also can see how self-serving in some ways his arguments are. So his argument was, yes, the Constitution says there are unenumerated rights, but the unenumerated rights are things that were 
absolutely, you know, uh, established uh, in in uh, in human life at the time that the uh, amendments were ratified. So, you know, he's sort of saying if it's not something that was in practice, you know, in the 19th century and in some cases the 18th century, it can't possibly be an unenumerated right. And that's a very restrictive standard. And there are many, many legal scholars who are, you know, within earshot of this this uh, a program that will uh, uh, gladly argue the case another way. But, um, you know, this is this is where the legal battle has been fought. Just a quick reminder, we are talking with Peter Canellos. Uh, Canellos is author of a fantastic book that's very relevant to our journey toward a more perfect union. It's called The Great Dissenter, the story of John Marshall Harlan, America's judicial hero. Uh, you you raised the notion of, of what was in practice at the time when the Constitution and amendments were written, Peter. And it's interesting that this really kind of points to one of the main vectors about the Constitution of those who are originalists versus those who interpret the Constitution under more modern current day circumstances. You know, there was no internet when the Constitution was written. There were so many things that just flat out didn't exist at the time. But at the same time, we need to figure out things like constitutionality with respect to, well, what does digital privacy constitute? So I think that the originalist view over the long term ultimately has to give some sway to the fact that we live in an ever-changing world. Your thoughts? Well, you know, that is the the liberal position that you have to you, know, you have to take into consideration evolving standards, that you know the Constitution is a living document that binds people today in the United States. It's not uh, a set of rules that was put in place uh, uh, 250 years ago and and therefore uh, is inviolable. And you know, and yet, you know, the conservative backlash against that is that once you open the door to evolving standards, uh, it essentially becomes kind of uh, justices uh, sort of super, superseding the words of the Constitution uh, to, to impose their own view of what evolving circumstances are. And, you know, often that means evolving in a liberal direction, and that creates a kind of liberal bias on the courts and things. And you know, those are arguments that certainly have been out there, and there are a lot of people, a lot of conservative uh, legal scholars who who believe them very, very strongly. When you look at these kinds of battles, like uh, unenumerated rights, how do you determine what are the unenumerated rights? Liberty from government interference. You know, to some people, and a lot of a lot of them, women. Um, uh, you know, there is no more fundamental liberty right than controlling your own body, right? I mean, it's just you know, how can you talk, possibly talk about liberty if you're being forced to carry a, a pregnancy to term? You know, and yet there are other people who will view things sharply, sharply differently. So what comes into play is the judgment of the court, and that's kind of why we have the court. That's why we have people on it. And clearly, when the founding fathers uh, instituted this system, they envisioned uh, sort of eminent legal scholars and people of wise judicial temperament being put on the court and in a spirit of good faith coming together to kind of resolve these decisions. And that's that's why the politicization that we're dealing with today can be seem so painful. You know, it's like, are the people who are being appointed now, first of all, at a much younger age, because you want to keep them on the court forever, uh, you know, we were talking before about uh, 
you know, William O. Douglas having served for 39 years, Clarence Thomas is going to break that record unless he has a serious health problem in the next few years um, because he went on the court so young. Uh, so presidents have realized and Congress have realized that putting people who are 40 years old on the court means they can serve for 50 years if they live long enough. But are those the wisest people? Are they the people who can bring the most uh, perspective to these decisions? Are they people? We've also seen that no politicians can get on the court these days because they've taken stances on some of these issues. And it, it, to me, it's the ultimate irony that someone like our former governor, Deval Patrick, would not be considered a strong candidate for Supreme Court for several reasons. One is he would be too old. So you would hear from, you know, liberals that, you know, putting a man in his 60s on the Supreme Court is a waste of the seat because he's not going to be able to serve long enough uh, by dint of age. Uh, but the main reason that he would not be put on the court is because he's he's taken stances in favor of abortion rights. And traditionally, the kabuki theater we've gone through is that all of these 40-year-old uh, legal types who've come onto the court claim to have no pre-existing position whatsoever on abortion when everybody knows that they're being appointed because of their position on abortion. So it's a, it's a, it's a wacky, dysfunctional system that erodes confidence and credibility and, and deprives the country of, uh, you, know, even, you know, even though people would disagree with whatever decision the Supreme Court came up with, you know, they don't get to be able to say that, well, at least you know, these people came together in good faith and they were chosen because of their wisdom and maturity and knowledge of the law. And there's no perfect system, but but we can put our faith in this one. Uh, you, you can't do that as easily anymore. You also, uh, in, in light of everything that you just mentioned about the, the justices having supposedly no position, and in some cases, uh, dodging the issue in private discussions with senators who now feel that they've been uh, deceived in some way. Um, I'd, I'd sort of like to reflect back on, on Harlan's position uh, or uh, his career. Uh, and again, you know, returning to your book, what were the national expectations and what were the expectations of Congress in the process of Harlan's appointment if you can sort of compare and contrast some of that, I think that would be interesting. Well, one thing that's fascinating about uh, Harlan's appointment is that some of the same tensions that we've seen with recent appointments uh, were, were present then uh, in 1877. Um, it was a very freak occurrence because um, in those backroom discussions, as, as people know, uh, Rutherford Hayes and Samuel Tilden ran for president in uh, 1876 but three Southern states had breakdowns in their electoral system and sent competing teams of electors to Washington. Those who were Republicans would say that the elections in those states were marred by violence and fraud, that black people and, and Northern sort of quote unquote carpetbaggers were threatened and intimidated and in some cases killed and attacked uh, to prevent them from voting. On the Democratic side, there were feelings that, you know, these. Uh, restrictions on former Confederates from voting totally distorted the whole concept of the will of the people and that, uh, you know, there were clearly majorities in those states for the Democratic candidate, because uh, at that time, the Republican Party was the party of civil rights. So you had these competing electors coming to Washington, and the Republican Party controlled the levers of power in Washington, and wanted to come up with a system whereby they could have Hayes take over the presidency as a Republican, which of course would preserve all the 
patronage jobs for Republicans and things like that. But they wanted to cut some sort of a deal so that, you know, there would be something less than fury in the South when this decision came down. And we talked before about the idea that troops would be removed from the South. And again, historians can parse these questions or whether troops would have been removed anyway, or, you know, whether the, the period in which uh, uh, the Civil War's gains were sort of enforced by, by troops uh, was coming to a natural end or not. But part of the discussion was making sure the troops would leave the South. Another part of the discussion in those back rooms was putting a Southerner on the court because uh, David Davis, who had been a personal friend of Abraham Lincoln's and was something of a swing justice, had left the court. He'd been elected to the U.S. Senate, so there was an open seat. And Hayes and his people thought that it would appease these Southern states to say, we have only Northerners on the Supreme Court. It's time for us to have a Southerner on the Supreme Court. The problem was that the Judiciary Committee was still controlled by what was then known as the so-called radical Republicans, which were strongly pro-civil rights Republicans. And it was headed by a Senator, George Edmonds from Vermont, who was a very staunch uh, civil rights supporter. So here's Hayes sort of promising the South they're going to have representation on the Supreme Court, but also facing this group of Northern senators who are extremely skeptical of anyone who was anywhere near the, the rebellion. and. Um, Harlan had a complicated history. You know, uh, as we mentioned, he came from a slave-owning family. He pursued all these compromises to try to prevent the Civil War. So he was not arguing for abolition before the war. He would say, I think if we had him here, that in Kentucky, abolition essentially meant war. You know, so he was trying to find a, a compromise. Um, and then at, immediately after the Civil War, when he was the attorney general, he opposed uh, the imposition of the, the post-war amendments um, uh, on Kentucky because Kentucky had stayed loyal to the union and that, that he felt that Kentucky had been promised the ability to set its own path after the Civil War. But many people perceived that to be, uh, you know, something less than full-throated abolition, and it was something less than full-throated abolition. Uh, but then Harlan changed his position. So it was a very strong, articulate, uh, opponent of slavery, but he changed his positions because the Ku Klux Klan was taking root in Kentucky and he saw the destructive power of the Klan. He became, well before he joined the court, somebody who was articulating for equality under the law. Nonetheless, these Northern senators didn't trust him and there were plenty of political rivals from Kentucky who uh, sent letters uh, uh, challenging his, uh, his commitment to civil rights, saying he was sort of a twisty politician and he'd you know, change his stripes to suit, to suit the times. And this is where Robert Harlan's role became important because the black community was politically important to the Republican Party. You know, in Ohio, which is where Robert Harlan was the most important African-American politician, that was the swing state. You know, the reason we had so many presidents in that era from Ohio is that you needed to win Ohio to win the presidency. And it was a, a competitive state politically and the black vote was, was a crucial difference maker for the Republican Party. So here you have the leading black politician of the most important state come to Washington to say, look, I, I grew up alongside this man. I was in the same house. Uh, I was enslaved and I'm now uh, a, a politician and I, I trust him. Now, we don't know, there's no evidence that any senator said, well, we listened to Robert Harlan here, but uh, I think it did have an effect in reassuring people on, on Harlan. Uh, John Harlan, and he barely made um, uh, confirmation. The vote was lopsided in his favor in the Senate, but in the Judiciary Committee, it had to be voted out of the Judiciary Committee. And it was the subject of all kinds of 
behind the scenes machinations. And ultimately, George Edmonds, who ironically would later go on to be a friend of Harlan's, he, uh, he arranged to be out of the committee room so that they would advance Harlan's uh, nomination, but Edmonds himself would not have to own that nomination. He wouldn't have to be seen as supporting it. So um, it was a, a lot of, you know, uh, machinations that suggest that, you know, today's politics are not, not the only era in which the actions and omissions of convenience. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, I think Jeff would agree. They called that taking a walk, uh, <laughs> <laughs> in political parlance and stuff, yeah. you, you know, especially if you're a lobbyist and you look up and, and the person and stuff who's your sponsor is not there and they're bringing up the vote for your particular uh, issue and you go, oh my goodness, where did he go? He took a walk. <laughs> um, you know, which also brings up something else too that you mentioned in your book that I found extremely fascinating was how open Harlan was about his acceptance of uh, of blacks. Uh, I recall you uh, you told one story in the book about uh, when he and uh, Frederick Douglass were at a dinner together and he sat next to Frederick Douglass, which, uh, you know, people then, you know, all of their jaws drop because here's this Southerner sitting next to this, uh, you know, this great black symbol of not only abolitionism, but uh, one of the most prominent orators and probably one of the best known uh, uh, black uh, activists of his time. And here's Harlan sitting next to him. Uh, and later on in life, Harlan uh, commented that, you know, why not? I mean, this guy is probably more prominent than me. <laughs> and it was a pleasure sitting next to him. Uh, I enjoyed that particular piece. Um, and at the same time, uh, uh, you know, here's something, too, that I I really like my fellow panelists to you know, sort of comment about. I think that one of the things that we're we're doing in today's environment uh, is that we're we keep looking for the Frederick Douglasses, the Martin Luther King Jr.'s, the, you know, these prominent, huge national figures, when that's not where the battleground is anymore. Social media has sort of turned that whole idea of a national leader on its head. Uh, I mean, I can be, a, a, you know, an influence right from my living room, uh, you know, on my computer. Uh, so, your thoughts about the differences in the times with regard to Harlan and, you know, and things were at a slower, uh, I'd say communication pace too. They had to be, uh, back in the 18 and early 1900s. Uh, you know, if something was coming out of the Supreme court, I, I think the Supreme court ought to go back to this idea that, you know, they go into the Senate chambers or they go someplace and they read, and then they have to face the public as they give their um, uh, pronouncements about cases, uh, you, you know your thoughts, gentlemen. Well, there was it's a it, a lot of interesting stuff came out about the the role of the black community and how uh, black um, political uh, power was it was wielded during that time, and there were huge differences of opinion within the black community. Uh, and you had people like Frederick Douglass and Robert Harlan, whose specialty was essentially addressing the white community, you know, bringing the interests of black people to the white community. Uh, and, and as you were suggesting, uh, Michael, 
the one the one figure who sort of be is able to speak for the entire race you know they would they would play that role uh in society and it was partly a function of the idea that you know while black people had some power around the edges as they did in ohio and robert harlan was able to exploit some of that um you know they were still very much a beleaguered minority and that their yes. rights and their protections were totally dependent on winning over white opinion and white people in position of power so having a representative like frederick douglas was uh was an important thing at that time uh one thing we find now today as you were suggesting you know is that political power is sort of elsewhere and there is no a uh, single representative of uh, one one race or one constituency who sort of stands up right. stands above the others, and um, you know we were talking before about uh, Harlan's uh, reputation and the Harlan story, and I think it's been shaped very much by the times that that this is a moment when uh, black people in particular, but other people of color too, women we're talking about identify with the struggle on the ground more than they identify with the struggle in the courts or the struggle on the right. in politics or the the, the the leadership. So uh, the kinds of, of political issues that are fascinating in this book and that we talk about with Frederick Douglass, with Robert Harlan, with John Marshall Harlan, with other, other people, the various justices and presidents are not a story that people are uh, contending with right now on the ground, you know, that you're, you're much more likely to find somebody saying, well, what about the, you know, the victim of discrimination who is fighting from the bottom, you know, let's not talk mm -hmm. about those people on top. And it's just a, a notable change in our right. uh, moment that we're in in society. Um, uh, but I don't think it's, uh, and I think it is related to the internet and it's related to, to political activism. It's also related to the increased political clout of committee, communities of color, which is, are almost a majority. So, um, uh, well, well, when you look changed. at the, well, when you look at the 1800s too, and, and I'm glad you brought up the idea that, you know, that today, you know, we have the, these minority majority communities, but, uh, when you look back on it, uh during reconstruction there was a similar phenomenon that we had min, uh, minority majority communities but they were minority majority communities because of the disenfranchisement of those who had been uh confederates who were taking off the voting rolls in other words uh now with just the republicans and uh the black community making up a substantial part of the republican party uh especially in the south and the disenfranchisement then of those who were Confederate soldiers or Confederate leaders. Okay, now we've got these minority majority communities, but that that minority majority only existed because of the protection of the federal government and the troops. And and I guess this is and here for me is the parallel. Up until the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, it was the Voting Rights Act itself that sort of acted as the protector, if you will, of minorities in this country around voting. If you gut the uh, Voting Rights Act of, uh, of 1965, now we've got a situation where uh, we can start to slowly peel off those votes and we can do things now even in the light of day that starts to disenfranchise folks with no scrutiny from the federal government in other words now there's no protections again 
And I call that the second removal, <laughs> okay, uh, of troops out of the South. And it, and then we find out that it's not just the South. And, and one of the things you pointed out that I didn't realize is that when you look at uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, and, and Ohio, even then, back in the 1800s, those states were not bastions of liberalism and progressivism, if you will. And suddenly we find out here today in the 2000s that the Voting Rights Act helped to protect all voters of whatever stripe. And now that it's been gutted and now we're faced with, all right, do we try to uh, re-implement that again through legislation? I think, again, there are some tremendous parallels between the 1800s and especially between 1870 and 1900. And now, since the federal uh, courts have gutted the Voting Rights Act, they're now retrenching in terms of the um, uh, rights of people of color and of women, and they're ignoring the needs of the people. And I found that those two very similar. And, uh, you know, any other comments or observations from? Yeah, uh, I'll, uh, add, from I'll add two comments to that. One is I think you're right that the Voting Rights Act ended up uh, supporting all voters and that many of these efforts to depress turnout in various places, uh, if they were were framed as uh, disproportionately affecting people of color, there was a protection against it in the Voting Rights Act that no longer exists. Um, but in the process of protecting uh, the rights of people of color, there were a lot of white voters that also were protected and were also given, given greater access to voting. A comment you made earlier about Frederick Douglass and John Marshall Harlan, it's true that they were friendly. It's true that they wrote letters back and forth. It's true that they dined together at the home of James G. Blaine up in Maine. Uh, and it's true that Harlan was challenged on the campaign trail in Kentucky for having having uh, eaten uh, dinner with a black person. And he, by his account, he responded furiously that, you know, Frederick Douglass was a finer man than anyone who had raised that question on the campaign trail in Kentucky. But the, the Frederick Douglass story that even impressed me more was that when Frederick Douglass died in the mid 1890s, there were only two white officials in position of power who attended his funeral. John Sherman, who was the senator from Ohio and the brother of William Tecumseh Sherman and the Sherman of the Sherman Antitrust Act, he showed up and Harlan showed up. The funeral was in Washington, right? And you'd think that all Congress would come to pay respect to this great black leader who before the Civil War was the most sought after speaker in the North, right? Everybody in New York and Boston wanted to hear from Frederick Douglass. All those people turned their backs on Frederick Douglass when the issues changed and, you know, segregation started taking hold and it was Douglass sort of inveighing against segregation and speaking, um, speaking out against rolling back the gains of the Civil War. Suddenly, white Northerners kind of turned their backs, you know, and, and who was he left with other than the black community as supporters? But... Um, but Harlan and Sherman among among elected officials or, or in the case of Supreme Court, people in position of power. That was it, you know? Kind of an amazing story, an amazing turnaround and an amazing story of how, uh, you know, white support for uh, people of color uh, varies tremendously from time to time. And the same people who are embracing uh, the black cause at one moment are against it passionately uh, in another mm -hmm. moment. Well, it makes me very proud that 
that Harlan and his whole family uh, were from Kentucky, and you have illuminated a lot for me uh, in terms of the Harlan family and their history. Uh, and uh, I'm somewhat uh, embarrassed that uh, in all of the, because they teach uh, Kentucky history in the, uh, in the public schools there, and it's pretty extensive. Uh, and I'm embarrassed that uh, I missed uh, not only the the importance of the Harlands, uh, but also the importance of John Marshall uh, Harlan in particular. So thank you very much for uh, for at least helping uh, to sort of pull the cloud out over my eyes o- over a piece of our history that I think, again, uh, has been unheralded and needs to be focused on a lot more. Thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciated talking to all of you. This is a fascinating discussion. Uh, and I will find out afterwards if you tried to reach out to me and I didn't get the message, I'll try to figure out what happened there, Michael, and uh, make sure that we can connect. It's it, those spam filters. I noticed, you know, uh, Jeff sent something to my work email. And if you sent it, then it's it, from a private email account to my work email. It's possible that it way late that way. Right. But, um, but I do look forward to, to staying in touch with uh, any and all of you. And I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about uh, John Marshall Hall and the great dissenter, uh, who, who really is a figure of inspiration. Thank you very much. Peter Canellis is author of The Great Dissenter, the story of John Marshall Harlan, America's judicial hero. Thanks again from all of us here on the panel, Peter. Yes, thank you, Peter. Enjoyed it immensely. Thank you so much, Nick and Pete. It's great to meet all of you. Is, yep. is there a website specifically for your book by any chance? There's a, there's, there's a personal website, petercanellis.com, uh, and Twitter account, et cetera. Um, there's also a, a page, a Simon & Schuster author's page. And, um, you know, there's been a lot that's been, um, been written about it and other places where people can get more information about, about the book. But, you know, you can order it on uh, Amazon. You can get it uh, from your local independent bookstore. The paperback was just published uh, a week ago or two ago. Um, Excellent. Excellent timing, yeah, I would say. A, a great read yeah, for our time. Another more perfect hour has flown by, and we have to say our goodbyes until next week. If you would like to weigh in on our discussions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at franklin.tv. That's I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. And if you enjoyed our discussion, please let us know. If you disagree, all the more reason to let us know. You can also share or listen to this program on or any of our past episodes anytime. Our podcasts are available online. Just visit our website, wfpr.fm. For Peter Canellas, uh, Dr. Natalia Linos, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, our representative on Beacon Hill, Jeff Roy, along with our station manager, Peter Jay, and my co-host, Nick Remesong, I'm Chris Wolf. Thanks for listening and joining our shared journey toward a more perfect union. This is Franklin Public Radio.